All right, so as always, I count it a tremendous privilege to be here with you this morning, pouring over God's inspired word with all of you. And Happy New Year as well. Let's dive in because there's a lot to get to this morning. Our sermon text for this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 24, as it was just read. There's a lot here. And I was tempted to cut off the message at, say, verse 19 or verse 10 or even at verse 6, but I couldn't because I was afraid of what, in my mind at least, is the most important thing about these verses, and it is the idea that they are indeed tied together into one long thought from our Lord Jesus Christ. They are links in one extended chain, chain, each paragraph feeding the next, and I could not bring myself to break it. Even verse 25 and following are tied in here. You can see if you just jump down in your Bible that verse 25 begins with, at that time. But my plan is to leave that for Pastor Scott to tie in later. There's only so much time between now and the Steeler game tonight at 8.20. Anyway, my point here is that verses 1 through 24 are tied together, and I trust we will see that together. I recently listened to a prominent contemporary uh, winsome preacher preach on Matthew chapter 11, and he did it in six or seven sermons. And, And I admit that such a more detailed approach is possible The problem, though, is that in much of what was said, the original context of the words of Jesus was lost. The series became primarily, listen, the series became primarily about the generation and the context in which the preacher lives, and less about the context in which Jesus was living and speaking and ministering. By the end, we will make some application, I promise. But I want us to see first, I want us to see John the Baptist and his disciples. I want us to see Jesus and I want us to see the crowds, look at verse 7. I want us to see the crowds in their context. And then I believe we can see clearly what this means for us, 21st century American types. So before we dig into the details, as introduction, I want us to see that this section, verses 1 through 24, it's going to come to us in what I'm calling four acts. Four acts. So act one is verses 1 through 6, where Jesus fields a question from the disciples of John the Baptist, and then he answers it. So act one, we'll call Jesus and the disciples of John. Act 2 is verses 7 through 15. And we can see that this is a self-contained section as Jesus begins in verse 7 with, quote, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So Jesus' audience changes in verse 7. And then Jesus says in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a clause of conclusion. So act 2 we'll call Jesus' tribute to John the Baptist. Acts Act 3 comes to us in verses 16 through 19, where Jesus describes the generation in which he and John the Baptist are living. And again, it is important that we see the context. Again, there will be application, I promise. But we have to first make sure we understand what Jesus' audience would have heard and understood Jesus to be saying. 
Act 3 we'll call the discontented generation. Finally, we come to Act 4, which we will find in verses 20 through 24, where Jesus pronounces oracles of woe on the cities where most of his works had been done in and around the Sea of Galilee. So Act 4 we'll call the woes on Galilee. Later, in Matthew chapter 23, we will see the woes on Jerusalem, but that, of course, is for a later date. So strap yourselves in, and let's begin. Act 1, Jesus and the disciples of John. Jesus and the disciples of John. In verse 1 of Matthew chapter 11, we read this. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their, that is the disciples, cities. Of course, if you remember the time that we spent in Matthew chapter 10, you realize that what's being referred to here in verse 1 of chapter 11 is the apostolic discourse or the missionary discourse. From chapter 10, Jesus gives his disciples instructions for evangelism in Matthew chapter 10. And then he sends them off to go and preach the kingdom. And then Jesus goes off himself to continue his ministry among the towns of Galilee where 11 of the 12 disciples lived and were from. Matthew says he was teaching and preaching in their cities. Verses 2 and 3. Now when John, speaking of John the Baptist, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now here you may be surprised to see the spiritual stalwart John... The cousin of Jesus himself, the one who baptized Jesus and declared, quote, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29. Here, John is doubting. Asking literally, Jesus, are you the coming one? Which means, in that day, Jesus... Are you really the promised Messiah? How can this be? How can John the Baptist be doubting the messianic mission of the one he had baptized? Now some commentators attribute the question of verse 3 to the disciples of John only. The commentators themselves doubting that the great John the Baptist could himself doubt. My opinion is that of the majority of commentators, that such an interpretation is a bit of what we call hagiography. The veneration of a human, because it's John the Baptist. He couldn't possibly doubt, could he? I mean, he saw the Holy Spirit of God descending as a dove on this same Jesus at his baptism. I believe he could and did, in fact, doubt. For in mere humans like us, our faith is always intermingled with doubt. John was no different. And let me show you why I believe this is the case. 
Let's continue on and look at the rest of Act 1, verses 4 through 6. Please look with me there. Verse 4, And Jesus answered the disciples of John, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Verse 5, The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Verse 6, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The first thing we should note here is that Jesus responds to John and his disciples with a quotation from the Old Testament. It's actually a bit of a mashup from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. If you're carrying around with you a New American Standard Bible, you will note that some portions of verse 5 are in all caps, which signals to us an Old Testament quote. There's some of Isaiah chapter 35, there's a touch of Isaiah 42, and a pinch of Isaiah 61 thrown in there as well. But I want to focus on a couple verses from Isaiah 35. You don't have to go there, just please listen. Three verses from Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. This is what the prophet writes. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. And with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And it's interesting to note, isn't it, that Jesus quotes from verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, but he does not quote from Isaiah chapter 35 verse 4, which again says, please listen, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Now think about John. Where is he? He's in prison. How did he get there? Well, we don't find out until chapter 14 of Matthew's Gospel, but suffice to say at this point that John's ministry isn't going very well. In fact, if you've read ahead a little bit in Matthew's Gospel, you know that John the Baptist is not too many days away from having his head cut off by Herod. And John knows the scriptures, especially the Old Testament prophetic scriptures. Why? Because for one, his father Zechariah was a priest. And two, John himself was bred to be in the line of the Old Testament prophets. I mean, the guy wears camel hair for clothes and eats locusts for goodness sake. If he's not a prophet, no one is. But he's in prison. And he has expectations of what the Messiah should be and do. Fine, Jesus, open the eyes of the blind, unstop the ears of the deaf, raise the dead if you must, but can we get on already with the vengeance and the recompense of God? Why haven't you come to save me, your cousin, languishing in prison? Isaiah chapter 35 verse 4. Don't you know, Jesus, what kind of general I could be in your army? So the point is this. John, through his disciples, he asked Jesus, Are you the coming one or shall we look for another? 
And Jesus, by quoting from the prophet Isaiah, responds by saying, Yes, I am the coming one. I'm doing the works of mercy first. The vengeance and the recompense and the salvation is yet to come. And then Jesus says, look at verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 6 of Matthew chapter 11. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word offended there in the Greek is the word skandalizo, from which we get the English word scandal. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me, Jesus says. We'll come back to this. Let's proceed on to Act 2, Jesus' tribute to John the Baptist. Please look with me at Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15. As they, John's disciples, went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Verse 9. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Alright, so much of this paragraph is our Lord's tribute to his cousin, John, son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And why was such a tribute necessary? Why was it so timely? Well, John's disciples had just reported to Jesus about what? John's doubts. So lest anyone in the crowd get the wrong idea about the importance, listen, the importance of John the Baptist in redemptive history, Jesus pays him tribute. Jesus says to the crowds that John was decidedly not some reed shaken by the wind, being blown about by every wind of doctrine that came along. John was a man of conviction. John was decidedly not some favored subject in a king's court, showing deference to the authorities of the day and unwilling to speak truth to power. In fact, his speaking truth to power will eventually cost him his head. No. John the baptizer was a prophet. Even more than a prophet. In fact, John was the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, this is he, speaking of John, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Here, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, which we heard earlier. Then we can see a little later, verse 14, look at it. Jesus also says to the crowds, And if you are willing to accept it, he... John is Elijah who is to come. This Elijah who is to come, as Jesus calls him, is also from from the prophet Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, the very last chapter 
in our Old Testament. So here Jesus, listen please, this is so important. Jesus is putting John the Baptist in his rightful place in redemptive history. And it is a high place indeed. Look again at verse 11 please. Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. High praise indeed. But not the highest place. Do you see that? Like, what if we keep reading in verse 11? Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does that mean? The truth is that there's a month worth of sermons in that statement. And the reason is because the statement is linked to the concept of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the heavens, as Matthew calls it. You see it there in verse 11, right? The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. So, at this point, I know what you're doing, actually. You're sitting there thinking to yourself, isn't John the Baptist in the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to be greater than or less than in the kingdom of heaven? So start with the basics. What is the kingdom of heaven? And to all these questions, I say this. Matthew chapter 13 is coming soon. Ian's got to stick around. But let me just say at this point, one important thing we should recognize right here in Matthew 11, just to whet your appetite a little bit for Matthew chapter 13. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me, please. Jesus says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. We see this language from Jesus denoting specific time frames. Do you see that? From the days of John the Baptist until now. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And what I want you to see this morning is that whatever the kingdom of heaven is, there is a transition going on in the lifetimes of John and Jesus. So whatever your perception of the kingdom of heaven is, you have to be willing and able to account for this transition that's happening right here in Matthew chapter 11. And even more challenging, your perception of the kingdom of heaven must account, listen, must account for the low place of John the Baptist in it. If he's in it at all. Look at verse 11 again, please. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Today's not the day to answer all of these questions. When we get to Matthew chapter 13, we will focus at, time on, at that time on this kingdom 
that Jesus has begun to tell us about. One final thought, though, in Act 2. What does Jesus mean when he says, verse 12, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. I have more to say about this at the end, but for now, what I want you to see is, at the very least, this statement is part of the eulogy, part of the praise that Jesus is pouring on his cousin, John. Here again, at the very least, Jesus is bearing testimony to the fact that John had, in fact, lit some kind of match that ignited the kingdom of heaven. This is all part of the same argument that Jesus is making. That John, son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, is the prophesied one. He is the Elijah to come prophesied by Malachi. Something substantial has begun. And John was appointed by God himself from the womb of Elizabeth to start it. So that's what I want you to take away for now from Act 2. Verses 7 through 15. This was Jesus' tribute to his cousin John. And it is high praise indeed. Alright. Let's proceed on to Act 3. The discontented generation. The discontented generation. And I trust that you see why we must continue on. So the person of John the Baptist is tied to this next paragraph. And where Jesus was undoubtedly praising his cousin John, here Jesus is undeniably condemning the generation in which they live. Let's look together at verses 16 through 19. Jesus says this, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Verse 18. For John, this is John the Baptist, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, let's reason together just a little bit. I want you to see those two little words in verse 16. The words are, this generation. Remember, this is Jesus talking almost 2,000 years ago. This generation in verse 16 is that generation. First and foremost... In context, when Jesus asks, but to what shall I compare this generation, there should be no doubt in our minds that he is talking about his generation. The one in the midst of which both he and John the Baptist are living. Brothers and sisters, please hear. Let us be careful not to read ourselves into the text when the text in context, is not referring to us. Some teachers literally make their entire ministry out of that error. 
And so what does Jesus, our Lord, compare His generation? Look at it again with me, please. Verse 16, Jesus says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Do you see what's happening here? This is so profound. Please, let's see it together. First, we have to see there are two groups of children. Verse 16. What kind of children? They're ancient Near Eastern children. Children who lived, say, 2,000 years ago. And what did they do for fun? To entertain themselves. They didn't have iPhones or iPads or virtual reality goggles or Snapgram or Instabook or FaceChat or whatever. No, their options for self-entertainment were quite limited compared to the children of our day. I might argue for the better. These groups of children in the ancient Near East would often entertain themselves by mimicking the activities that were central to their culture. What they knew, where large numbers of them could participate. In my day, we would grab about ten guys and head down to Troutman Field in Munhall and play pickup baseball. Or home run derby with wiffle bats and tennis balls. Those were the good old days. That's, when, that's what we did to get a bunch of kids involved to pass the time in the summer and to generally, generally stay out of trouble. And my mom would bring us PB&Js and ice water. Oh man, that was good times. My brothers and my friends from high school and I really truly still talk about those games. In Jesus' day, the children would mimic the activities that were central to their culture where large groups of children could participate. And those activities were, in general, two. Weddings and funerals. I want you to see these two activities here in the text. Again, Jesus says, verse 16, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, looking for something to do. Verse 17, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. This first example is a happy time replete with airy flute music and dancing. This is the wedding. And then Jesus says, We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. This latter example with the sour music and the mourning is the community funeral. Now remember, Jesus is providing an analogy here. He's comparing his generation to these children. And so second, we must take these two groups of children and we have to map them onto that generation, onto the people of Jesus' day. And friends, there is only one mapping that is plausible here. Let's map them together. First, there are the children who are acting out the cultural events. They are acting out the wedding. They are 
acting out the funeral? Who are the actors in the gospel narratives? These must be, chronologically speaking, John and then Jesus. Let's look again. Because Jesus will provide the explanation of the analogy in the order of Jesus, John, John, Jesus, right? So if you read poetry, this is an A, B, B, A. Here we go, right? Follow along. Verse 16, Jesus says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. Verse 17, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. This is the wedding. This is the message of Jesus. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. This is the funeral representing the message of John the Baptist. Verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. That is he, John. He comes with a seriousness. He comes with an austerity. He comes with a mourning, if you will. Verse 19, and on the other hand, the Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That is, after John, here comes this Jesus, and he is a partier. He whoops it up with the Saturday night crowd. Very different from that other camel hair bug eating guy. So the children in the analogy who are acting, who are calling out to their playmates, are John and Jesus. And they come, listen, they come with different tunes, different lifestyles, and yes, different messages. But, this is key, John and Jesus are calling out to the same playmates. Same people to that generation of people among whom they were walking. And in this context of Matthew chapter 11, he's talking about the crowds of Galilee. And how do these playmates, how do these people in Galilee respond to the messages of John and Jesus? These two messages, these two lifestyles, which are quite different. I mean, you would think, listen, you would think that such two different messages, two different lifestyles, with them being so different, either the playmates would gravitate to the one, or they would gravitate to the other, right? You would think that these ancient Near Eastern children would either want to have a little fun mimicking a wedding, or perhaps they were in a minor key mood, and they wanted to act out a funeral. Answer? They want neither. It would be like back in the day rounding up my summer buddies and asking, so you guys want to go do something or do you just want to hang out here and do nothing? And they're like, nah. I'm like, like, like you can't not do nothing and then not do something. You have to pick one. Look at what Jesus is saying about his generation. Look at this indictment. Jesus is saying, John came with an austerity, a seriousness, a law-based message of repent. And so much of that generation, the authorities especially, were like, eh, not interested. Sounds demonic. 
Then Jesus says, all right, now I come onto the scene and I'm willing to party. I'm bringing a message of grace and mercy and deliverance to the sinners in the land. So much of that generation, the authorities especially, are again like, no, you're just a drunken, self-appointed rabbi. A sinner who eats with sinners. Still not interested. We have to see what's happening here. What Jesus is saying in this analogy, in this indictment, is this. This generation in which he and John are ministering is so hardened against the things of God that it doesn't matter what message comes from God, they aren't listening. Jesus says to them, God sent you a prophet. He sent you more than a prophet. And you were like, meh. And then he says to them, okay, bug-eating prophet, not good enough. I got it. How about the Son of Man? Good enough for you now? Jesus says at the end of verse 19, Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What's he saying? I think it's easiest to understand this if we consider the discontented children. The ones who reject both the message of John and the message of Jesus. Both the message of the law and the message of grace so hardened against the things of God that they simply cannot bring themselves to respond to any message that God sends to them. And I think Jesus is saying to them, to that generation, you are fools. And in the end, God himself, in his sending of John and Jesus, will be shown to be the wise one. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds can be translated as something like, God knows what he's doing. Ignore him and his messengers at your peril. And this indictment continues in Act 4, does it not? Act 4, the woes on Galilee. Let's look together, beginning at verse 20. Then he, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until the this day, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, that's Jesus' hometown, by the way. All cities in and around the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus, to this point in his ministry, has done the bulk of his ministry. And he denounces them for what? For what? For their hardness. Exactly what we were just talking about. And how does this hardness manifest itself? In their refusal, listen, in their refusal to recognize what, or rather who, has been in their midst. 
in their refusal to repent of their disinterest in the things of God. Look at it. Verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you, what mighty works? The mighty works done by Jesus, the Son of Man Himself. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. In sackcloth and ashes. Verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Why? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, Sodom, it would have remained to this day. First, Jesus says, there is the indictment associated with their ignoring the calling out of the messengers of God. The prophet, John, and then the Son of Man. Then, Jesus says, there are the mighty works. The restoring of the sight to the blind. The restoring of the hearing to the deaf. The supernatural cleansing of the lepers. The resurrection of the dead. I mean, what else does God have to do to get this people's attention? And what about Tyre and Sidon? What's going on there? I trust I don't have to give you any background on Sodom, do I? We mentioned that a couple weeks ago. The point is this, that in the Jewish mind of that generation, of Jesus' generation, these cities, Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, they were all bywords. They were proverbs in the mouth of the prophets. Proverbs that represented what? The judgment of God. Sodom, you know, of course, from Genesis chapter 19, where God himself rained down fire and brimstone from heaven upon their ungodliness. Tyre and Sidon, two coastal cities right next to one another on the western edge of Israel. These were similarly judged by God himself for what? For their pagan idolatry and their lascivious lifestyles. For their refusal to repent and acknowledge the one true God of Israel. God using Nebuchadnezzar, then Alexander the Great, and then Artaxerxes, the Persian, to again and again and again pound the pagans in these coastal cities. You can read about that in the Old Testament. And look what Jesus is saying here about these Galilean cities. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. The cities that he himself has lived and ministered in. Look at what he's saying about them. He's saying, as bad as Tyre was, as bad as Sidon was, as bad as Sodom was, such that God had to rain down fire and brimstone on them for what they had done. As bad as these byword cities were, which necessitated the righteous judgment of God, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, you are worse. Verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Why? Why did he denounce them? Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Verse 22, I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
Verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You will be brought down to Hades. Verse 24, I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. How is this even possible? It's possible, friends, because to whom much is given, much will be required. Plain and simple. See, Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, as bad as they were, and they were bad, as bad as they were, they are only guilty of rejecting the law of nature. Should they have known better, should they have known that their paganism and their fornication and their refusal to acknowledge the one true God was worthy of judgment? Yes, they should have. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that what can be known about God should have been plain to them. Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and following. Yes, they should have. But these cities in Galilee, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, they will reject not just God's law revealed in nature, but they are rejecting the last Old Testament prophet, John, and they are rejecting the very Son of God Himself. And this rejection, this refusal to repent, will require an even stricter judgment. Reject the Son of God Himself and the destruction of Sodom ain't got nothing on what you have coming. In short, and in context, friends, you need to know that that generation, the generation that rejected John and then subsequently rejected Jesus, that generation, brothers and sisters, is in trouble. And when you read through the gospel according to Matthew, you must read it with that context in view. Now, let me finish very briefly with some words of application. What should we make of all of this? What can we learn from the words of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 11? May God etch whatever He wants onto each of our hearts this morning. First, from Act 1, we should learn from the doubts of John the Baptist. Because they are our doubts in many ways. John, family member of Jesus himself, was in prison. His life and ministry weren't going exactly the way he had planned. He was reading the scriptures as you do. You know Isaiah 35. He's interpreting them. He's waiting for the vengeance of God. Isaiah 35 verse 4. He's looking, listen, he's looking at Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 that reads this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon the Messiah because the Lord has anointed Messiah to what? To what? To bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, and freedom to prisoners. And John's like, What about me, cuz? I'm a prisoner. And Jesus is just out there in Galilee, he's doing 
What He does, He's showing mercy and grace to sinners. And John does not quite understand what's going on. And we are no different. I know that for many of you, your Christian life isn't going the way you expected it to. You read the scriptures and sometimes you wonder to yourself, where is all of this victory that I'm promised? Can I just get a little of this from glory to glory thing today? Maybe in 2023? And doubts, however small, doubts creep in. See, funny thing about faith, it's always intermingled with doubt. Because our faith, listen, our faith in this life is always imperfect due to our sin. And then, in the next life, we don't need faith. Because we will see Jesus face to face. So what do we learn from Act 1? We should learn this, and it's simple. When we doubt... We run to Christ. When we doubt, we run to Christ. Because He's the only one who can solve our doubt. He's the only one who can fill the gap. He didn't, listen, He didn't shun the questions of John the Baptist. He didn't shame John the Baptist for asking questions. Do you see that? He answered the questions. And He says to us who believe, Yes, I am the coming one. I'm out here by my Spirit. I'm doing my thing. Don't be scandalized by me. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. And be blessed. When we doubt... We run to Christ. Act 2, what do we learn? You say, preacher, yeah, run to Christ. Easier said than done sometimes. To which I say, amen. I'm no different. So we fight. The words of Matthew 11, verse 12, look at it. We get violent. Again, I know you you read the scriptures... (laughs) All that talk in Ephesians 5 about spiritual warfare. Who is all that talk for? It's for us. I want you to know that that violent language there in Matthew chapter 11 verse 12, it has a connotation of seizing the spoils of war after a city is conquered. That's the word. Matthew Henry says this, This text shows us what fervency and zeal are required of all who will enter in. Self must be denied. The bent, the frame, and the temper of our minds must be altered. Those, listen, those who will have an interest in the great salvation will have it upon any terms and not think them hard, nor quit their hold without a blessing. Referencing Genesis 32. Jacob the river Jabbok. End quote. Spiritual warfare is the fight of faith. It is the battle to believe. So brothers and sisters, let us fight and claw together. What about Act 3? What do we see from there? There's lots of things. I just want one, one quick thing to chew on. This week. 
One thing I want you to see from verses 16 through 19 is law and gospel. John and Jesus. Listen, they are both, (laughs) they are both messages from the same God. And they both require response. Please don't get them mixed up or intermingle them in such a way that both are lost. There is a time for a dirge and there is a time for dancing. May God grant us the wisdom to know the difference. Finally, what about Act 4? What can we learn from the oracles of woe that Jesus pronounces on the cities of Galilee? Let me just say it again. To whom much is given, much will be expected. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He shed his precious blood on the cross at Calvary. He rose again on the third day. He ascended into heaven where he sits now at the right hand of the Father making intercession for his people. These words require response. And we ignore this word at our peril. May God, by His Holy Spirit, grant a godly response to this, His inspired and infallible word. Let's pray.